0: We are all disciples, followers, learners, students of something or someone, always learning, listening, and wanting to either be taught by others or teach others. Jesus calls his followers to be disciples of him above all else and to invite others into his way to make disciples that make disciples. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, as Colin said, uh, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus on this beautiful snowy Buckeyes lost yesterday, Sunday morning. What better place is there to be to find comfort and solace than in the house of God? (laughs) Right? No. For for real, though, Uh, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus, and I'm just grateful that uh, you made your way out here this weekend uh, to touch base with us uh, and to connect with God and his heart and his word as God communicates who he is, what he's like. And as he communicates who we are in our relationship with him, the relationship he desires, as we unpack his word together, we believe that all of that is on the table and that uh, when we go to God's word together, we're hearing nothing short of the very message in the heart of God for us. So this is a great place to be this weekend. I'm excited on this Thanksgiving weekend. Hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving. uh, But I'm excited on this Thanksgiving weekend to continue in a series uh, that we kicked off Last week, a series, as you can see on the graphic behind me, a series that we're calling Disciples of Something, Disciples of Something. And so uh, by way of quick recap, last week, uh, Pastor Steve, who is our give-it-away pastor here at the Medina East Campus, he walked us through this introductory conversation, and he basically said that whether we like it or not, whether we're cool with it or not, or whether we acknowledge it or not, we are all, every single one of us, Disciples of Something or we're disciples of someone. And so Steve walked us through this kind of idea that uh, by very definition, the idea of being a disciple means that we as human beings, we take our identity, meaning who we are and how we see ourselves in the world and our relationship to God. We take our identity as well as the way of life in which we operate, in other words, our lifestyle, that we take our identity and our lifestyle and we are just disciples of some outside force or some outside influence. So whether that outside influence be a person that has been notable in our past or in our lives or in our experience, or maybe it's been a group of people, or maybe it's even been a set of ideas that has been propagated throughout history that we're subscribing to and that we're conforming our life around, Steve basically walked us through this idea that we are all disciples of something or someone or some set of ideas. And so we kind of concluded and landed last week that the rest of the series is basically going to be about not asking the question of whether or not we as human beings or as people are being discipled, but instead, the real question we should be asking is who or what is discipling us. So, in light of some of that recap and the introductory conversation that we had last week, Where exactly does that put us as we're situated here today in week two of this sermon series? What do we hope to accomplish that will further us along some of the greater goals and themes that we're looking to unpack and discover in this series together? Well, I have to say that uh, first and foremost, I got an email about three or four weeks ago, and it was from Pastor Steve, who has kind of been the driving force or the overseer of all the thoughts and the ideas of this entire series. Steve's done a great job. And so about three or four weeks ago, Steve shot me an email uh, because apparently that's what you do. You shoot people an email. Don't know why I said it that way, but nevertheless. Okay. So Steve fired away an email Fired away an email to me about three or four weeks ago, and he basically was just asking me, Hey, Seth, would you consider taking week two? Would you preach the sermon on week two of this series? Now, the reason why I tell you that, I was very grateful that Steve would ask me to do that and honored to be a part of the conversations. But uh, what Steve actually did in that email is he suggested or he recommended that I give this particular installment of the series, this sermon, he suggested that I give it a title. And the title that he suggested, I thought, normally, you know, at the Medina East Campus, if you've been around here for a while, normally we we don't highlight or focus on sermon titles. We're really pointing more toward the big ideas in the series and how each sermon connects with some of those big ideas. But I got to tell you, in the email, the recommendation that Steve gave me for titling this sermon, I thought it was so helpful and it was so incredibly illuminating that i thought it would be very much worthwhile to share it with all of you okay so the title of this sermon in this series disciple of something disciples of something the title of this sermon you ready for it the title today is og disciple making guys you can't make this stuff up right this is literally what see, he said i want you to title it og disciple making not like oh goodness disciple making or og oh, disciple making no OG Disciple Making. So now for some of you in the room, you are like I was when I received this email, just radically confused. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about, Steve? What is, maybe I have an idea of what Disciple Making is, but what's the OG here? And so if you're like me, if you're perplexed, right, that probably means that you are over 40 years old and you're not hip to the jive lingo funk slang of the young peoples, the whippersnappers nowadays, right? And so rather than do the sensible thing, I'm like, you know what? I got to do the detective work. I got to figure out what this OG acronym means. What is this all about? And rather than do the sensible thing and actually email Steve back and ask him the question, I decided to do something that I would never recommend to anybody. I decided to go out to urbandictionary.com. Right? All of us are gritting our teeth, right? Let me just say this. If you are 18 years old or younger, Never, ever go out on urbandictionary.com. It's grotesque, it's derogatory, it's profane, it's nasty. And I would also say if you're over 18, never go out to urbandictionary.com. But nevertheless, I did the hard thing. I went out there and I discovered what OG means. You ready? According to urbandictionary.com, OG is slang for, this is so helpful, original gangster. Or as some people might say, original gangsta. Right, And so now you're even more confused, right? Well, apparently, Urban Dictionary not only gives me this title, Original Gangster, it lets me know, or it lets us know that actually this phrase, Original Gangster, or OG, was popularized around about 1991 when the rapper Ice-T came out with an album called Original Gangster OG, Original Gangster OG. So if you're like, dude, I like Law & Order SVU, love Ice-T, love me some Ice-T, right? But apparently, Ice-T popularizes this, he makes it well-known, but prior to that, the idea of OG or original gangster was already becoming a slang or euphemistic term in a certain community. And apparently, UrbanDictionary.com says that well before Ice-T came out with his 1991, when he dropped his album in 1991, apparently, original gangster was already being floated around and it meant something like this. An original gangster is someone who is worthy of honor. So it's a person who is to be respected, right? And why? Well, this particular person who's worthy of honor is so because they are old school, right? Listen, I can't say that right, okay? I just can't say that right, but they're old school, right? Why? Well, they're the first and they're most authentic, right? The thing that everybody wants to do and pattern their lives after originated with this person, with the original gangsta. It's they're the first, or they're the original. And because they are the first or the original of something, they are thus worthy of imitation. They're worthy of imitation. So when we talk about OG disciple-making, basically we are asking the question this morning, where did disciple-making originate in the scriptures? Where, who is the original disciple-maker? And why would they be so worthy of imitation? Who's the original disciple maker? Where does that first show up in God's story of salvation in the scriptures? Now, for some of you who maybe uh, are more familiar with the Bible, or you've been maybe a follower of Jesus for some time, um, a lot of you in this room, when you think about where's the first spot where disciple making or discipleship really lands on the scene as something huge and massive and pivotal in scripture, And a lot of you who are maybe more familiar with the Bible, you start thinking about this passage, right? Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, This passage has often been called the Great Commission. And actually, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, we're just going to be here for a couple seconds. If you want to make your way out to Matthew 28, 16 through 20, you can do that. Uh, Also, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you, and Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission passage, will be at the bottom right-hand corner of page 811 in those Bibles. And so again, for many of us, we would look or we would say that the first spot, the OG disciple-making that appears in Scripture, which would make it, again, key point, worthy of imitation, would appear here. And so this is what Matthew says in the last five verses of his gospel. He says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So a little pit stop here. Prior to this, at the beginning of Matthew 28, uh, Jesus is risen from the grave. He rose from the dead. He's resurrected. And a couple of women who still think he is dead go to his tomb to embalm him or to continue to like, put spices in the tomb so it doesn't smell funky. And so they get to the tomb. The stone is rolled away. Jesus is not in there. He's alive. And as they come out of the tomb, they meet someone who winds up being Jesus. And Jesus gives these women the instruction to go back to his disciples and let them know that he wants to meet with them post-resurrection on this mountain in Galilee. So in verse 17, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, by virtue of my resurrection from the dead, of my sin-conquering death and resurrection, the Father has bestowed upon me all rule, power, authority, and dominion as the Lord of the world in all dimensions of reality, both in the heavenlies, in the immaterial space, as well as the earth, the material space that we can see and that we interact with every day. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, in light of this, in light of this authority, he says to his disciples, go, and what? What does he say? Make disciples, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. In the original language, this all nations communicates all kinds of people groups. So in other words, get off the mountain and go to the farthest extensions of the world and make disciples with the authority that I'm giving you. And then how are they gonna make disciples? Well, Jesus specifies the way that disciples are made. First, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This idea of baptism is kind of the notion of immersing people in the way and the life of Jesus. In other words, baptism uh, has somebody going underneath a body of water to symbolize their death to an old life. And when they come out of the water, the symbol is that they are rising again to a new and vibrant different way of living. And Jesus basically says, go immerse them. Jesus says, I died for you to the old life that whoever puts their faith and trust and confidence in me, they can be said to have died too, to that old life. And Jesus says, immerse them in this reality that they've died to the old life. And that just as I am raised from the dead, Jesus is basically saying that so too, they can walk in a new kind of life. Jesus says, go, tell people, immerse them in my story and in my identity and who I am. And then you're also going to, he says, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Give instruction about the way of new living that Jesus has offered because he has risen from the dead. And he says, I'm going to be with you in all of this. Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so as we think about OG, original gangster disciple-making, this seems like it would be it. All the ingredients are here, right? So basically what we're seeing is Jesus, right? We could say Jesus is the original gangster. He's the original gangster, original gangster disciple-making. Now, as we think more about this, again, as I mentioned before, this passage in Matthew 28 has been called the Great Commission, Now, what you're not going to find is the word commission showing up in this passage, are you? It's just not there. However, the word commission becomes a very compact or compressed, succinct, yet really effective way to describe everything that Jesus is doing and saying and what he's conferring onto his disciples in this passage, right? So if you think about the word commission for a second— We actually don't need to go to the dictionary in our English dictionaries to get an idea of what this notion of commission is. Do you guys notice uh, what two ideas in English are present here in this word commission? Think about it. Well, first you have a co, right? There's a collaboration. There's a cooperation, something done together. And then you also have in the second half of the word, a mission, that there's a task or a goal. And right, we can see this in Matthew 28. There's a mission that Jesus tells his disciples, he gives them the task of heralding or announcing his saving rule, his death and resurrection to those who are still enslaved to sin, to those who are still enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus is not simply going to leave his disciples on their own to try to figure out how to accomplish this mission by themselves. He says, no, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think Jesus is anticipating the later outpouring of the Holy Spirit that, according to Scripture, makes real to followers of Jesus the presence of Jesus in their lives. And so Jesus is not going to make the disciples do it alone, but neither is he going to do it unilaterally or all by himself. No, instead, it's a co-mission, is that Jesus will partner with his disciples as a way to make his way known to others. And so in one sense, you can see in this passage that there are two absolutely core or key ingredients to this idea of disciple making or being a disciple of Jesus who makes more disciples of Jesus. And we can see it here. The key ingredients are number one, Jesus and humans are gonna work together in partnership. They're going to do this thing hand in hand, arm in arm, walking together. But what are they going to do? Number two, Jesus and humans are going to accomplish a mission together. So now that we've kind of surveyed that, let me just ask you, let's pause for a second. And let me just ask what I think is a really important question. In light of the curiosity of where did disciple making originate, where is the OG disciple making in scripture? Let me ask you this. Is Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen through 20, is this the first time that we see these two ingredients appearing in Scripture? Jesus and humans in partnership? Or God and humans working on a mission together? Is this really, is this really the first time where we see two of these things? Now, let me just say, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been thoroughly immersed in the church experience for years, maybe you know a lot of the Bible, you're like, I see where you're going with this. No, no, this is not indeed the first iteration or the first instantiation of these two key ingredients of disciples making disciples. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, dude, the way you just asked the question lets me know that no, This is not indeed the first time that we see this in scripture. So let me just say that if you answered no to that question as as to whether Matthew 28 is the first time you see this in the Bible, if you answered no to that, congratulations. You're right, you're right. Actually, I believe, I thoroughly believe that if we want an utterly breathtaking and thoroughly biblical understanding of God and humans in partnership to accomplish a mission, OG disciple making, we actually have to go far more old school than what we find here in Matthew 28. In fact, I firmly believe that in order to see this, we actually have to rewind all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story. So again, most of you have your Bibles out already. I want to invite you to now turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. Listen, if you have a, a Bible under the seat in front of you, it's really easy to find. It is on page one of the Bible. This is the beginning of the story. Ladies and gentlemen, as you're turning there, it is my honor and privilege to introduce you to OG original gangsta disciple making. All right. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, three short verses. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. I like other translations, the creeping things that creep on the earth. Just love that. Uh, Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right. So for starters, what we have to realize here is before we dig into some of the things that this passage is saying, for starters, we have to realize that we are, as readers in verse 26, we are dropping in at a kind of culminating point in God's creation of the world. Genesis 1 reveals to us that God created the world in six consecutive days. And then in Genesis 2, at the beginning of Genesis 2, it reveals that God kind of completes a creation week, a full seven days, by entering into his rest, by entering into creation on the seventh day. And so round about here in verse 26, we are on day six of creation, about the middle of day six of creation. And here we find that Genesis is introducing to us at a very high level, the formation of human beings. You and me, right? This is where we came from. This is how we were created. Now, I do think it's important to note before we move further, it's important to note what this passage is intending to do and what it's not necessarily intending to do. It's important to note. You see, for ancient readers and for this ancient author of scripture here in Genesis, the account of human origins that we see here is going to be less about the scientific specifics of how and when our species came to existence. You see, in Genesis and in the ancient Near East and the cultures of this time period, authors and writers about human origins were less concerned with physical material origins of how and when humanity came into being. And they are far more concerned with, this is very important, they're far more concerned with human purpose, the human significance, human function how humans were designed and intended to interact and relate with God in the world that he created. So again, what we're reading here has more to do with why we exist as human beings than it does about how we came into existence. Now, I think this is a really important distinction, and it becomes pivotal when we start to draw out a little bit more of what the text is saying here, especially as we look at this Key word that appears three times in the first two verses in this passage. This word image. God says, let us make mankind in our image. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. The author, by way of repetition in such a short space, is drawing us as readers to see that this term image is absolutely crucial to understanding the big, beautiful gravity of what is being stated about human beings here. Now, for us, image, We think it's the idea of a reflection, or we think maybe when we look at the mirror, we see an image of something. But actually, um, in the ancient world, especially in the time when Genesis was written, the word image had some different connotations that were associated with it. So if you actually look behind the word, the English word image that appears here in our passage, you would discover that the Hebrew in which this was originally written, the Hebrew word that lies behind this is the word tselem, tselem. So, in other words, if you want to know how to pronounce this, if you have some stocks that are doing very poorly, and you call your broker, the thing you're going to tell them to do is sell them, and that is the worst excuse for a joke that I think I've ever heard in my life. So I apologize for that, but nevertheless, that's how you say it: sell them. Now, here's what's interesting: a sellum, at its base definition, look at this, is simply a stone, a wood, or a metal statue. It's a statue. Sometimes it could have been made of clay that was hardened, but nevertheless, it is a statue. Now, in the cultural context of the Old Testament, a tselem, or an image here, was fashioned typically as a replica or a facsimile. Now, this is really important. A replica or a facsimile of a human king or a human ruler, okay? So, and often, Selims were strategically placed by these human kings. They would have them fashioned to resemble them a little bit. But more strategically, human kings in these ancient cultures would have these things fashioned so that they could place them in strategic spots at the greatest extent of their empires. And so, at Selim, as you can see here, this is actually, uh, you can see this if you go over to the British Museum even today. This is a Tselem or a statue, of the Assyrian king around about 900 or 800 BC called King Ashernazipal II. Say that five times fast, right? So this is Selim of Ashernazipal. And the idea is Ashernazipal II would have had a number of these things created and strategically would have placed them in the greatest geographical regions of his empire. The image was more than just a resemblance of the king. The idea of representation or what this image would have represented was far more critical or important. See, the image that Selim would signify the rule, the authority, and the power, we might say the way of life and the culture that the king desired in his domain. The rule, the authority, and the power of a king, now this is important too, of a king, in a specific location, in a specific location within his empire. So the question might be, well, if there is a human king who is reigning on the throne in his capital city, if that human king is not physically present throughout his empire, how would you know that that king's way of life was operate, operative or how his rule was operative in different territories within the empire? Well, a him. an image that's how you would know that this king's way of life, that this king's rule was operative. So let let me just say this, silly analogy, okay? What I'm going to give you here, just to kind of express this or unpack this a little bit more, um, we have a map of the ancient Near East, specifically Mesopotamia, okay? And so you have Babylon would have been over here, Assyria would have been over here, Syria would have been here, Israel would have been over here, and then you have an Armenian desert over here, Now, let's just say we are um, ancient Babylonians, okay? And so our capital city is Babel or Babel in Hebrew right here, okay? And let's just say for a hypothetical scenario here, we have a king who is ruling over our territory. And let's just say that that king is King Pastor Steve I, okay? So he he looks so regal, right, with the crown on there. I literally spent five minutes situating the crown at the right spot on his head. So there you go. So we have a king who is seated in his capital city, King Pastor Steve I. Now, let's just say that King Pastor Steve endeavored to conquer more territories in his empire to bring those regions underneath his good, wise, and beautiful rule. I mean, of course that's beautiful, right? It's King Pastor Steve. So let's just say he wanted to do that. And let's just say he moves his armies out and he conquers this area and this territory, this region over here, and he brings it under his rule. What is the first thing that King Pastor Steve I is going to do to let everyone in that region know whose way of life is operative there? Well, he's going to make a selim of himself. The BK King is King Pastor Steve, by the way. So, and then let's just say... King Pastor Steve continues to move in the farthest stretches of his empire. What is he going to do as he subjugates and conquers and enacts and his way of life in these new regions? He is going to multiply more Selims. And the further and further King Pastor Steve goes to demonstrate his wise and his good rule in the furthest regions of his empire, he's going to make more and more tselems. Now, I know this is a silly analogy, but think for a moment how these ideas interface or help us understand what it means to be made in the image of God as it's stated in Genesis 1. Guys, God created humanity not just to resemble him physically, but to resemble his character and his nature and his goodness but also to be representatives of his authority and power and goodness in the world. Human beings were not originally designed to find life and fulfillment in their own agenda and in our own rule. Guys, human beings created in the image of God, we are designed to be God's partners, to link arm in arm with him, in the furthest reaches of the world. So that wherever we are, there it could be said because of the character of the God that we reflect, there it could be said that God's wise, good, and flourishing rule could occur in that geographical space. We are as human beings in the original design intended to be God's partners to exercise God's rule on God's behalf, showcasing God's power and authority wherever we go. In other words, wherever we are, this was the original design, wherever we are, God the true king could be said to be ruling in powerful love. What an amazing, noble, dignified purpose and identity we are designed to have as human beings. And not only here in Genesis one, do we find this amazing identity and this partnership. We also find the second key ingredient. We find that we are created to partner with God for a mission. We read here in verse 28, it says, God blessed this original human couple. He blessed humanity. And he said to them in this blessing, Be fruitful, like increase in number, fill the earth, subdue the earth. On my behalf, we might say, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, this idea here, if we have the word image, is this amazing partnership. The second key word that we get is at the found at the beginning of verse 28, where it says, God blessed. He blessed. Humanity to accomplish this task. Now, unfortunately for us, when we encounter the word blessing, uh, often in our modern context, we have kind of so warped and mutilated and twisted this word that when we think of blessing, it often is a far cry from what an ancient person or the biblical author meant when he said that God blessed humanity. You see, for us, I think you would agree, right? The only time we hear the word blessing or bless is when someone sneezes, right? God bless you. Or, or, Sometimes it's used to refer to this really twisted idea that somehow when God blesses us with health, wealth, wisdom, prosperity, and all these great things, that somehow that blessing is an indication that God has approved of some lifestyle that we've exhibited and said, that's a good one. You're a good boy. You're a good girl. Therefore, I'm going to give you great success and material prosperity. But unfortunately... To an ancient person, to the author of Genesis, these ideas of blessing as sneezing or somehow God validating our own efforts by giving us more money had nothing to do with the idea of blessing. Listen, if you were going to look up the word blessing in a Hebrew lexicon, which is like a dictionary of how these terms were used in the Bible, here is one of the first entries you would find about blessing. That blessing is to be filled with strength by a well-resourced benefactor in order to equip a person to accomplish a task. And we might add to the end of this in parentheses, a task that is the task of the benefactor himself as he partners with those he fills with strength. Guys, I just need to read this again. Do you see how beautiful the blessing is of God here on humanity? that God desires not just to leave us on our own in representing him in lands unknown and in regions untapped. God is the one who is personally in the partnership and the loving relationship, going to fill human beings with the strength that they need to accomplish the task. God says, I'm going to validate who you are and the partnership I've drawn you into and I'm gonna give you the power and the strength and the authority. All authority has been given to me. I give it to you. God is going to fill human beings with strength. God is the well-resourced benefactor. And it is all for the great mission and the purpose. This is going to equip us as human beings to achieve something for God, to accomplish something on his behalf. I love the way that one Old Testament scholar, William Van Gemmer, and I love the way he puts this. He says, we're often in our modern world, the modern man will think about blessing in terms of success, prosperity, health, wealth. He said, no, the Old Testament man thinks very differently about what blessing is. The Old Testament man would talk of blessing and that blessing would be that which is blessed is going to function and it's going to produce at the optimum level as God had always intended it. It's going to fulfill its divinely designated purpose. And here's what I find fascinating. Right here in Genesis one, we have the divinely designated purpose. What does God want us to do? What is God blessing us, filling us with strength to accomplish? Well, he says, be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth on my behalf. Wherever you go, there I am. Subdue and fill. Fill the earth. Now, for all that could be said about these phrases, I just want to key in really quickly on this idea of what it would mean to fill the earth. Fill the earth. Let me just ask you this. If God says, and if he commissions humanity to fill the earth with his love and his power and his goodness, to rule in beauty, And purpose, if God said to fill the earth, if that was part of the blessing, what does that mean or what does that imply about the state of the earth prior to the blessing that is given? What does that say? Now, listen, I don't necessarily understand this completely. I'm not sure that I ever will, but I think think what this means is that when God created human beings, is that there were areas, territories, regions in the world that God created but that had yet to have manifested in that sphere, in that space, the reality of God's powerful rule and love. Because God didn't just want to create unilaterally and flood the earth with his greatness and goodness on his own. God wants to partner with his imagers with his selens, to do that. And again, I'm not sure I quite understand it, but I think this means that part of the mission and part of the task is that there are undeveloped aspects of creation that has yet to come under God's good and righteous rule. So in some sense, the mission, therefore, is going to involve creating more human beings, that human beings would be in their blessing Fruitful, that they would multiply, that they would grow and increase in number. And how is God going to make more imagers to send out to the farthest reaches of his territory and his domain in the world? Well, he's gonna partner with his human partners to make more partners. He's gonna partner with his images to make more images who are going to carry the rule and the presence of God wherever they find themselves, wherever they go. Did you see this? The key ingredients of OG disciple-making are already found here in Genesis 1. They should be very familiar to us. God and humans working together in partnership. God and humans accomplishing this great, noble, task of the mission of carrying God's presence and rule wherever they go. And they are going to do that together. Isn't this breathtaking? And yet sadly, in light of that great and noble purpose that God has extended to us as human beings, all we have to do is flip forward two chapters, Genesis chapter three, to realize that the entrance of sin and rebellion in the world has created a catastrophe at multiple levels. First, sin and brokenness entering in the world severs the partnership, the relationship that we were designed to have with God, to walk arm in arm with him as we carry this thing out together. And not only does sin fracture the relationship, it jeopardizes the mission. As a reader of Genesis 3, you ought to ask, how is God going to flood the earth with his greatness and his goodness if his image bearers have rebelled and have believed that they could define good and evil autonomously apart from what God has said? How is this going to happen? And so from one standpoint, listen, the entirety of the rest of the Bible, the whole story of scripture is all about how God is going to reconcile his human partners, bring them back into partnership and relationship with himself and how he is going to get the mission to prove his lordship over everything throughout the entirety of the earth to accomplish that mission. Listen, if you want to know how to read the Bible well, this is the controlling narrative, the controlling story that helps us understand every nook and cranny and facet. God's goal and his mission to renew the relationship with his partners to get the project back on track. And so therefore, in light of this, it should be no surprise to us when in Matthew 28... Jesus shows up on a mountain in Galilee, calls his disciples to himself. This is after he has already forgiven sin by his death on the cross and raised to new life and a new kind of partnership. Do You see what Jesus is doing here? This is nothing new. Jesus is renewing the Genesis mandate and offering a partnership to a brand new humanity that he has made possible by his death and his resurrection. Jesus here stands in the place he takes on the identity of the God of Genesis 1 because he is God of true God. And he is reviving the original gangster OG partnership in light of the new creation that he has just brought about by his virtue of his resurrection from the dead, his sin-conquering death and his resurrection to new life. Guys, do you see? Disciple-making? Man, disciple-making is not some new innovation in the plan of God. Disciple-making is not either an optional sidebar about a life or for a life that's ultimately about something else. Do you see that God never, ever traded the original mission to fill the earth with his greatness and his goodness for some cheap get into heaven version that would take us out of this world into some disembodied existence? No. Instead, following Jesus... And making disciples is a person saying yes, trusting who Jesus is, saying yes to him, but also saying yes to God's resolute commitment to reconcile us to himself and for us to be launched out on mission, to be fully human again. And if we could put it succinctly, disciple making is not some late innovation in the plan of God. No, very different. Guys, as human beings. Disciple-making, making making disciples, is what you were made for. You. 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 It's who we are. It's the way that God designed us. Disciple-making is what we were created for. And this is such that when we make disciples, we aren't just responding to the risen Lord out of some obligatory duty, begrudgingly. When we decide to follow Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus, what we're actually doing, is we are actually being filled with strength to accomplish the mission. We're accepting Jesus's salvation strength, his salvation power to transform us progressively into something that looks like him in order to get the partnership back on track. So that we as Jesus's followers can fulfill the creation mandate. So that we can bear fruit for God so that we can bring new creation children into God's family, whether they are our biological kids or not, so that we can fill the whole earth with the reality of God's good and glorious presence and his offer of rescue and salvation to those in lands abroad who need the hope and who need to be pieced back together again. Disciple-making is what you were made for, what you're created for. At this point in time, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I realize that when we trace this biblical-wide, this Bible-wide story of who we are intended or what God intended us to be as human beings, I know that we can live at such a high level. It's a beautiful and breathtaking portrait. But some of you might be asking, okay, Uh, Is this just an inspirational talk about the way to read the Bible? Or is there some practical thing that I can take away that I can apply or integrate into my life tomorrow, today, this week? And so let me just say that uh, I know that there are probably like in light of this talk, in light of this teaching, um, I know there are probably a host of different questions that you're probably still asking. Uh, Most of them are more than likely uh, uh, how and, and, and what questions. Uh, In other words, okay, this is a big grand vision. It's beautiful, but how does this work, right? In 21st century Medina, what exactly would making disciples like this to fulfill the creation mandate, what would that look like in the practical day to day? Now, listen, here's what I wanna ask you to do. I just wanna ask you, if you're asking those questions, I want you just to, I just wanna plead with you to lock in for the rest of the series. Come back next week and the week after and the week after that. Because this series is going to be moving in that direction. It's all about wanting to equip you and resource you to make disciples of Jesus, to fulfill the, Gen- the Genesis mandate and to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to do that. It's our heart and our desire to be able to equip you with those things. But for today, in closing, I just want to um, make an acknowledgement that even in light of the truth, that breathtaking vision of Genesis 1, I realize that a lot of those what and those how questions emerge from this sense that I get, and I think you get it too, this sense that making disciples and fulfilling the creation mandate seems like a pretty lofty goal, right? seems like a very insurmountable kind of task. And my guess is that it feels that way for some of us, because underneath all of those questions, we probably have some serious sense of inadequacy or inability, or the feeling of being like ill-equipped to be able to do this great big thing that God has asked us to do. And usually that sense is expressed in phrases that we give like, well, listen, I, I, I hear what you're saying about wanting to make disciples and all and invest my time, but things like, I don't, I don't really know all that much about the Bible. So isn't that kind of a prerequisite? Like don't you have to have a PhD in theology or whatever, like the theology of Genesis in order to do that? Or for some of us, it's, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's a really big, broad, grand vision, but I don't really have time to invest. Like I work a job, you want me to go to a life group, you want me to attend a weekend service. Like I don't even know how you would expect me to do that. Like I don't have time. For, for others, it's, well, I don't have enough resource, right? I don't, I don't have what I need to really get this thing on track. For some of you, you're like, I just don't really like people. Like that, that's a real thing, that's a real thing. And for others of you, you're like, I don't have time. I don't like people. For others, you're like, I'm afraid I'm going to mess this person up. Like, if I started to invest in somebody to immerse them in the story of Jesus and instruct them in the way of Jesus, like, I'm afraid that I'm going to screw that up bad. And they're going to be like, I'm going to do irreparable damage to their psyche and their spiritual condition as a result of trying to invest in them. And for others of you, right? I think underneath it all, there's just that pulse that we fear, that we're afraid that we're going to fail, that we're going to fail. Listen, let me just say that these are real tensions. These things show up in me, in all of us. But let me just say, too, that if OG disciple-making is about birthing new creation humans, immersing them in the story of Jesus, and training them up in the rhythms and the habits of the new life in Jesus to be unleashed in the world, then these feelings of inadequacy are not too much different than the feelings that first-time parents have not when they give birth to their first child, but when it's time to take that child home from the hospital, right? The fear and the anxiety and the stress. I remember for Sarah and I, um, when we had our first baby, well, I guess I shouldn't say we had our first baby. She did most of that work, right? But but we agonized and we labored. No, she did the labor. I got to choose my words carefully here. We agonized for nine months. And again, most of the agony was hers, but I, I took some heat too. Okay, come on. So for nine months, we're waiting and waiting and waiting for this child, our first child to be birthed. And finally, Elena comes into the world. And I remember being at the hospital and this is kind of odd because literally my daughter turns 16 today. Today, Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I guess it's worth clapping. I love you, sweetheart. I know you're not here. So I remember I'm living this 16 years ago today. And it was just like this beauty and this joy of the new life that came into the world. It was so exciting. First time parents. And I remember Sarah and I both having this sense of like, yes, we did it. Mission accomplished. We brought this baby girl into the world. And then, I remember on the third day, not when Jesus rose, but when it was time (laughs) to go home from the hospital, I remember, geez, packing up the bags, heading down to the car to our 1998 two-door Honda Civic stick shift, stuffing these things in our, the bags in our trunk, pulling the car around to the roundabout at the front of the hospital, watching the nurse's wheel my wife out in that wheelchair with the baby carrier the car seat on her lap. And I remember taking the handle and walking Elena over to the car, opening the door, having to get that dumb seat down because it's a two-door, right? Locking her in base, checking every seatbelt and every strap to make sure it was tight getting my wife in the car and I sat down and I turned on the ignition in the car again. And I just remember thinking one thing, I knew one thing is that I had no idea what I was doing. No idea. Let me just tell you the next thought that popped into my head was a resolve. And I believe it's the blessing of God on parents to infuse us with the task that's set before us. I remember thinking, just because I'm ill-equipped and I don't know anything. There's no way that I'm going to allow that to cause me to abandon her or to abdicate my responsibility to her and before God to raise her up, to instruct her, because she is an imager. She is designed by God to grow and that wherever she goes... There, God said, can be said to rule. That God was asking me to partner with Him to work in this little girl's life. I didn't know anything, but I knew I was blessed to do it. And I knew that Jesus had moved heaven and earth to restore me and reconcile me, to equip me for that very task that I don't do on my own, but that I do because He's with me. He's with me. And so, lastly, As the band plays and as we worship together, as we sing, I just want to ask you to do two things very quickly. Just two things. Number one, in the spirit of this Thanksgiving weekend, would you just marvel and revel at the goodness of God for making you into his image that that's his design for you? Would you just worship him and thank him and thank Jesus for inviting you back into the partnership, for making you brand new again? Just thank him, worship him. And then secondly, would you just take the inventory of all the hesitations that you have toward accomplishing his mission together with him to make disciples? Would you just take all the inventory and God's shoulders are big enough, would you just hand them over to him as an act of worship? Because worship is both a declaration of the objective truths of the reality of who God is but it is also an opening up of our heart as his partners to hand over to him the things that keep us from the big, amazing, beautiful things that he wants to do in and through us. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for giving us the story of scripture. Father, we want to thank you for being relentless in your pursuit of us. Though the author of Isaiah says, we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has turned to his own way, we've severed and broken the partnership, we've thumbed our nose at you, we've gone our own way in our own autonomous ridiculousness. God, you stayed so faithful and so committed. You never checked out on what you committed to do with us. And Father, we want to praise you that you sent your one and only son, your one of a kind, unique son, to reconcile us to you, to become your partners again. And Jesus, we want to thank you for the work that you did. We want to thank you for the spirit that you poured out on your followers, those who have said yes to you, so that we can be emboldened and empowered, so that we can be truly blessed by you, to fill the earth with your glory, and to go into lands abroad, that wherever we are, there you are. And that we would be faithful and true to you as newly constituted partners to communicate the hope that you offer and the desire that you have for every human being to come into that partnership with you. God, praise you and thank you. And God, help us with whatever inadequacies and insecurities we have that linger. Would you work with us in only the way that you can by your love and by your grace? just please transform us into the people that you want us to be. Help us to grab a hold of that as we follow you, Jesus, into the life that you have for us. We pray it in your name. Amen.